0: Revelation 14, verses 1 through 13, give ear to the reading of God's holy, authoritative, and inspired word. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Well, we looked uh, a few Sundays ago at Revelation chapter 13. I'll leave that for you to read on your own maybe this afternoon if you're not familiar with it that much. But in chapter 13, John wrote a vision of two beasts. This is one of those chapters in Revelation that even unbelievers hear about, talk about, think about. This is the chapter that has the number of the beast. Revelation is a book of numbers. Lots of numbers have significance. Uh, The number 666 is in that chapter And it has some hints there of what that's about. It has the mark of the beast. It has two beasts in that vision, one arising out of the sea in verse 1, one arising out of the earth in verse 11. And those two beasts, what they represent, remember Revelation is a book of visions, a book of signs, and what those two beasts represent are more or less the instrumentalities, the instruments that the devil, who is the dragon of chapter 12, the, the two instruments he uses to wage war on the church, on God's people. And those two beasts generally represent two things. One is kind of the violent persecution of the state against believers. You know, many nations in this world, even now, persecute Christians to the, to the death. It's not ancient history. It's often been said, and I don't know where the numbers come from, but people have said, and I believe they're right, that more Christians have been martyred for their profession of the name of Christ in the past century than in every century of church history before that combined. There are still places on this earth, many of them, where if you profess the name of Christ, if you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you are putting your physical life at risk you risk martyrdom for doing just that. The other the other beast in that chapter is the beast of false teaching and ideologies that often threaten Christians as well in many ways. Well the the vision of those two beasts if you were to read and if you were going to pick a chapter of the Bible uh, for encouragement, chapter 13 would not be that chapter. Now you might read that chapter and be kind of disturbed, even fearful. Well, you know, you read that, but then you get to chapter 14 thankfully. And chapter 14 opens with, as we read this morning, maybe when I was reading it you thought, what is that all about? But when you read chapter 14, especially the opening verses of the Lamb standing triumphantly in Zion with his army, the 144,000, of whom he loses none. That's half the point. And they're singing a song of triumph and praise uh, to the Lamb. It tells you that those two beasts in chapter 13 don't win. They don't get the last word. In fact, they get defeated. Their defeat is sure. That should bring great comfort and assurance to the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ. When you read chapter 14, you read of the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, not sitting but standing triumphantly in Zion with his army. Now notice in our text this morning, chapter 14, verses 6 to 13, John's going to tell us here of a vision that's very closely connected to that vision of the Lamb, the triumphant lamb and his army, which is the church triumphant. And it's a vision of three angels, isn't it? You read of three different angels, and each one of these angels has a different message. And those messages are related to each other. The first angel in verses 6 through 7, what does he have? What is his message? It says he has, quote, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. So the first angel has good news, the good news of the gospel to proclaim. Even at the 11th hour, what's the very next angel start talking about? Judgment, the final judgment that is sure to come. He says in verse 8, Verse eight, he talks about, he cries out with a loud voice that Babylon the Great has fallen. Babylon the Great may seem great in this life, but Babylon the Great is fallen. Now that, that message, even that phrase itself, harkens back to Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9, where Isaiah says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And that was the, the actual Babylon being prophesied, their fallen and destruction. And so we see it echoed again here in Revelation 14. Jeremiah chapter 51, a rather long chapter, we might look at that next Sunday, also talks about the impending judgment of God upon Babylon. Now, what is that talking about? That's God's judgment uh, to come on all the worldly influences and powers that stand in opposition to Christ and his church. All the things, all the nations, all the ideologies, all the groups, all the influences that you know of in this world, which are many, that vex the church, that persecute the church, that seek to oppose the gospel, one day they will all fall. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe. You talk about help or unbelief. We look at certain things, maybe even in our own country, Wickedness and unbelief seems to have taken hold and, and, and seems to hold sway even now. It's hard to imagine, I think sometimes for us, our country turning back to the Lord. It seems like it's spiraling out of control. Well, one day that will not be the case because Babylon is going to be fallen. It's going to be cast down. Well, the third angel, verses 9 through 11, also has a message, and that message is also impending judgment, but not just on the worldly systems and nations that tempt people to wickedness and oppose Christ and his gospel. This this impending judgment is that which is upon every individual sinner who persists in their wickedness and unbelief. God's judgments, in other words, are not just going to be some general judgment. Nobody really gets upset about that. If As long as you keep it vague and general, but it says here, everyone who worships the beast... Everyone who doesn't worship Jesus Christ really is what that message of judgment is is about. Now, that third angel especially, his message is as terrifying and sobering, or it should be, just as terrifying and sobering as the message of that first angel was hopeful. They go together. You cannot separate these two things. That first angel had a message of an eternal gospel to proclaim. The third angel has a message of warning of eternal judgment and torment to proclaim. Now, this passage in Revelation, you might know, I've said this a number of times, but certain things bear repeating when you go through a book like this. The the book of Revelation is written to comfort and give assurance to believers. If you're a Christian this morning and you read the book of Revelation and it scares you, if that's the main thing it accomplishes, uh, I say this morning that you, you are reading it wrong. You are reading it incorrectly. It is written to give you encouragement. It's, it's, a, it's a real book. It tells you trouble is coming. But it's also there to tell you that the Lamb is triumphant, and you are triumphant in, in Him. Now, it does, it does warn of judgment and eternal torment in hell, even in our chapter in verses 10 to 11. But you think about it this way. This, this chapter is also evangelistic, isn't it? It's evangelistic. It gives a warning the same way as we're going to see that Jonah was supposed to give a warning to Nineveh. God gives a warning in scripture like this to warn us to repent, to warn the unbelieving to repent while there is still time, to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal life while there is still breath in our lungs. William Hendrickson, that great commentator on Revelation, uh, he writes this, the three angels of verses 6, 8, and 9, they belong together. They have one purpose, namely, to warn mankind with respect to the coming judgment in order that men may turn to God in true faith. This isn't just meant to tell us, because we're curious, here's what's going to happen. It's meant to drive drive Christians to comfort in Christ, and it's meant to drive unbelievers to repentance. And faith for salvation. Now we're going to look, Lord willing, at each one of the the messages of these three angels in order. My original plan, if truth be told, was to look at all three of them this morning, but we're not going to do that. We're going to look at the message of one at a time, especially this morning, looking at the message of that first angel in the first couple verses of our text. So verses six through seven is where we're going to spend most of our time today. Look there again. The first angel, his message is a proclamation of an eternal gospel. Verses six, to 7 there John says then I saw another angel flying directly overhead he's looking up and there it is uh, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people and he said with a loud voice fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Now, the ESV, which we read and, and preach from every Sunday, it says that the angel was, was, where was he flying? It says directly overhead. Now, I think that this kind of obscures what John is saying. Uh, the King James actually puts it, I think, better, where it says he was flying, quote, in the midst of heaven. He's flying in the midst of heaven and proclaiming with a loud voice this message of the gospel. So that makes us look at a few things about his message. The first thing is, notice in the text the source of his gospel. The source of his eternal gospel. It's given, it's proclaimed by whom? By an angel. And where is that angel flying? In the midst of heaven itself. What is that meant? What is that picture meant to convey to you and me this morning about the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's of a heavenly origin. It wasn't dreamed up by any man. It wasn't, didn't find its origin in any human being. It's from heaven itself. It's from God. It's a, it's a message from God. And so when you hear the gospel of Christ, whether this morning or somewhere else, whenever, every time you hear the gospel of Christ, including at times uh, the warnings of judgment and the call to repent, now you, you no doubt hear it from human preachers. Myself and, and others. And we preachers, We tend to be of of varying degrees of gifts uh, and eloquence. Some more so, some not so many, not so much. You know, many of us are anything but impressive. You know, even the Apostle Paul, his own view of himself was that he was not very impressive. Now maybe we would have thought differently had we heard him. But the focus, your focus should not be on the preacher. I thank God for that myself. Uh, Our focus should not be on the preacher himself. I have to say, very often it seems to be. We tend, I think, to focus on the preacher's personality, or lack thereof, or excessive personality. We tend to focus on the gifts, whether great or lacking, of our preacher. But what should we be focusing on? The message. If the message is the gospel from Scripture... The message is of heavenly origin. We should not focus on the preacher or the messenger. We should focus on the message. Another way of saying that is to say that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is an authoritative proclamation from God himself. It doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. It matters what the scriptures say. It matters if it's a message from God. If, if you preach, we saw last week, a, a real biblical sermon should be, Thus saith the Lord, which means it has to be the biblical message, especially of the gospel. Well, the fact that the message of the gospel is an authoritative proclamation from God himself means the gospel, the message of God, demands your full attention. It, commands, it really commands your attention with the utmost authority. It's a message that we dare not take lightly. If it's in the word of God, we must not take it lightly. And it's a message we must not deliver flippantly. We are not here to entertain. We are not here to do anything like that. We're here to say, thus saith the Lord. Notice also, secondly, the span. The span of that eternal gospel, it's eternal. What does it mean? Why does What does John mean when he says that this angel had an eternal gospel to proclaim. That implies a number of things. The fact that the gospel is an eternal gospel means that the essence of it, the substance of the message of the gospel, does not change. There was not a different gospel in the Old Testament than there is now in the New Testament age. The substance of the gospel never, ever changes. And what does that mean? It means the way of salvation has never changed. At its heart, the message of salvation never changes. The way of salvation has never changed since the fall of mankind. In the garden, the way of salvation does not change. The way of salvation will not change. The substance of the gospel does not admit to change. Every sinner in the history of humanity since the fall until the end of time, anyone who is ever saved will be saved from sin, death, and hell the exact same way. By the exact same Savior, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why the Scriptures in the previous chapter, in Revelation thirteen eight, says that it speaks of Jesus Christ as, quote, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's again, that's the King James rendition of that. The lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. What is the what is God's way of saving sinners, and what has it always been? It was in sending his son to die the death that we deserve, to die in our place. Not only that, but the apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.4 tells us that not only was Christ slain from the foundation of the world, it was, it was in God's decree to such a degree that it was as good as already done before it came to pass, Paul says that he chose us, Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose those whom he was going to save in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us. He picked us. That's what it says. He picked those whom he was going to save from sin. He chose to save particular people from their sins. If you're a believer, he chose you from before the foundation of the world. And he doesn't just say, think about this again, It's easy to think of it this way. He doesn't just say he chose us before the foundation of the world. It it does mean that. He says more than that. He says he chose us, two little words, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means the way of salvation has always been determined and decreed as being in Christ and through Christ before the foundation of the world. It's an eternal gospel. It does not change It has never changed. Did you know that the gospel has the same message in the Old and New Testaments? One spoke of the Christ who was to come, the Old Testament. The New Testament points us back to the Christ who has come and died for our sins. Paul tells us the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says this. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of whom? Abraham. Abraham. If you're a Christian, you're a son of Abraham. You're the real Jews. You're the ones who were actually promised to Abraham. Those who are of faith are are the sons of Abraham and the scripture, the Bible, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, here it is, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And what was the message of the gospel to Abraham? Saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what's Paul's quoting, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which says, In you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul says, that's the gospel. That the scripture in saying that, you know, God, when God told Abraham in you all the nations shall be blessed, It was the gospel to Abraham. And why is that? What is it about that phrase that Paul quotes from Genesis 12 that makes it about the gospel? In what way would all the nations be blessed in Abraham? It was in his seed, in his offspring, in one particular offspring, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the seed that was promised to Abraham. And you and I who are believers in Christ are his offspring only in Christ. And so the, the Bible preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand by promising him, telling him of the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ who was yet to come in Abraham's day. Notice also the substance. What's the substance of the eternal gospel? It's an eternal gospel, it's good news, but John also kind of gives us a summary of what that message was, what that, doesn't he. Look at verse 7, it says, And he, the angel, he said with a loud voice, here's the message, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, the message that the angel is saying, at least the summary of it that we see here in our, in verse seven, you might think to yourself, there's a few things missing here. If it's the gospel, why doesn't it talk about Jesus? It doesn't talk about Jesus, it doesn't talk about his death on the cross, it doesn't mention specifically his resurrection on the the third day, it doesn't even say the word faith or believe. And so some commentators have looked at that and said, you know, the word gospel in Greek, it can just be translated good news or good tidings. And so they some have concluded that because it doesn't speak directly of Christ and his death and resurrection that maybe this isn't really the gospel, it's just good news in the sense or good tidings to God's people that he's going to judge the wicked, that he's going to judge those nations and and things that vex and persecute the church and the gospel of Christ. But I think that's too narrow a view of of even the gospel. For the gospel does involve a warning of judgment and a call to repent, doesn't it? I I think it's reading too much into one verse to say that this is not the gospel. I think that is wrong-headed. The gospel does involve a warning of judgment, and it does involve a call to repentance, at least in the Bible it does. Very often the gospel preaching so-called that you may hear omits those things, because those things are not pleasant, they are not fun to hear. People don't like to hear of judgment and the call to repentance, but those things are part of the gospel. And in fact, even our chapter, if you read the whole chapter together, which you must do, and the rest of the book of Revelation fills in those gaps. We are to read this call, this warning, and this call to repentance and understand it in light of the death and resurrection of Christ, the Lamb of God, spoken of all throughout the book of Revelation, even earlier in the chapter. Even the chapter before talks about Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You read this in light of that. It's implied in that. Now, a warning of judgment and a call to repentance has always been the mark of true biblical gospel preaching. It's always been that way. Think of the message that the prophet Jonah that we just read about earlier today in the service. Think about the message Jonah was told to preach. you, know, you might Maybe when we were reading that text, you said to yourself, how did that message cause that? What, what, what did Jonah actually say? Now, again, when you read the sermons and messages in the Bible uh, very often it's a summary. It, it, it's quotes, but very often it's a summary. He might have said a lot more than one sentence of a message, but but God in his wisdom and his sovereignty decided to give us this one thing to characterize what he said above all else. Look at Jonah 3, verse 4. It says, that, here's Jonah's message. Jonah began to go into the city a day's, going a day's journey. So he's a. Remember, it's a three days journey to go into the city. So he's a third of the way in. He's not even in the middle of the city yet. Going a day's journey, and he called out, "Here it is, short and sweet." Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. At the very least, that is the substance, the heart of the message that Jonah proclaimed to Nineveh. It's a message of impending destruction. Now, if if you're if you're paying attention. He could have gone and said tomorrow. That's not what God told him to say. God told him to say another biblical number. Forty days. You have forty days and that's it. But what's implied by that message? An offer of mercy. If God just wanted to destroy Nineveh, why would he send Jonah? Just so Jonah can get a front row seat? Sit under a plant and cheer it on and eat popcorn? No. And Jonah knew that, didn't he? Jonah knew that there was an implied message of mercy for the repentant. The message that God commanded Jonah to proclaim to Nineveh was a warning of impending judgment. You you imagine, they didn't like hearing that message any more than anybody else in our our day likes to hear that kind of a message. Messages of, of warnings of judgment and calls to repentance have never been popular. They don't sell books. But those messages were... Read. Pick any prophet in the Old Testament and you'll see messages like that. Read the Gospel of Christ. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus warned of judgment more than anyone else. Jesus spoke of hell. It's been often said, Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone in the entire Bible. Think about that. Jesus himself wasn't afraid to speak of those things and we should not be either. And what was the result of that message in the book of Jonah? Forty days and God's going to overturn this place. And what does it say? Verse 5 of chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they didn't just believe him and nod their head and go on with their life, did they? They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Revival broke out among the heathen. Among Among the least likely people you could imagine, God did that. God brought many of them to repentance and faith. Real, real revival. How do you know when revival hits? Just by counting numbers, counting noses, counting people that come forward. No, they repent. When when revival really hits, people actually repent and turn to Christ. Now, Jonah wasn't very happy about it, and as we already said, why was that? Why was Jonah so angry that he wanted to die and I mean, it's a, think about praying to God that you want to die. I mean, that, that's a scary, that's a dangerous prayer. What if God says, okay, you got it? He, he prayed to God and told God he was so mad he wanted to die. Why? Because he knew that God's warnings of judgment implied an offer of mercy to the repentant. Jonah knew it. Jonah knew what kind of God he served. He knew that God wouldn't say, you got 40 days for no reason. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says this, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Same kind of phrase that the king of Nineveh said about his own people. Turn back from your evil ways. Let us do this and see if God might Relent and he did. You know, that's that's the very message you read of in Revelation fourteen seven. And is that is the message we're looking at this morning not a message that we are in dire need of having proclaimed in our own land, in our own day as well? It's something you don't hear very often. What do you and I not see much evidence of in our day, even in our churches? You don't see the fear of God like you should. You don't see giving glory to God. You don't see true worship of him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We have many full churches and not much fear of God, not much glory to God and not much true worship of him who made heaven and earth. Now the absence of the fear of God, which I don't know if you notice, but I, that's what I see around me, around me everywhere in our culture, the absence of the fear of God. It's always a terrible thing. The absence of the fear of God always leads to increasing wickedness and eventually to ruin. Now think of of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul gives this, and he he quotes the Old Testament throughout, right? But he he quotes the Psalms, he quotes other places in the scriptures in the Old Testament to paint a picture of the depravity of mankind outside of Christ. How bad is it? Read Romans 3. How bad are, are people outside of Christ? How bad were we if you're a Christian, how bad were you outside of Christ? Read Romans 3. But what's the what's the capper? What's the cherry on top of the sinful Sunday? The last thing that Paul mentions when he wants to say how sinful we are, he sums it up in Romans 3.18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. Nothing holds them back. They just run headlong into sin and wickedness as if God does not see as if God is not holy, as if God is not going to judge. We need to recover the godly fear of the Lord in our own churches as well as in our nation, and we should pray that God would make that come to pass. What about giving glory to God? Giving glory to God. That that might not seem like such a big deal in some ways, but failing to give God glory is a hallmark of sinfulness and unbelief and wickedness. You know, you can be a very outwardly respectable and successful person. You may have no outwardly egregious sins of which to speak. You may look at yourself and say, you know, I, I, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad as that other guy down the street. Look at me. I'm living a good life. I have a good job. Uh, I have a good family. Everything is well. But do you glorify God? And if you don't, how righteous do you think you are? Look at Paul's words in Romans 1 chapter one verses 21 to 23 Romans 1 21 to 23 Paul says although they knew God they did not do what they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and did what exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things when Paul and, and scripture, therefore, thought of wickedness and unbelief, what's one of the first things he thought about? Not giving glory to God. Not giving glory to God. Failing to honor God and give him thanks. Exchanging God's glory for images. What is it? I, he's talking about idolatry. He's talking about false worship. And he says it's utter wickedness in God's sight. And how do you know that's true besides the fact that Paul says it in Romans? We saw last Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, we read Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. The second commandment, idolatry, no, no carved images. What did God, what does God say in Exodus 20 about idolatry? He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God equates false worship of even false worship of him, with hating him. That's what idolatry is. It's, it's self-styled, self-willed worship, of even of God or of false religions. Failing to give him thanks. Failing to glorify him. And so the first angel calls upon all mankind to repent and give God glory. Finally, the, what's the third thing? The wicked are called to repent and worship God. We owe God worship. We saw last Sunday in the psalm, praise is due to God, psalm 65. We owe worship to God as our creator, that's what it talks about here in our verse, and as our redeemer. Now think about this, the wicked and the unrepentant, sometimes we think, well, if they're not Christians, they don't worship. They're already worshiping. Everyone is a worshiper. It just depends, are you worshiping the one true and living God, or a God of your own imagination? Paul even says in the scripture that greed is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. You worship money. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. Money is an idol. Money can be a false god. Money can be something that you serve and make all of your decisions based upon. And he says the wicked and the unrepentant are worshiping already, but they're not worshiping God, and they should turn and worship the one God who alone is due that worship as our creator, sustainer, And Redeemer. Well, notice also the scope. The scope of the eternal gospel. John says that this gospel is to be proclaimed to whom? To those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Not only is the gospel eternal, there's only one gospel for all sinners. There's only one way of salvation for sinners, and it's in Jesus Christ. There's one gospel for every sinner under the sun. And so it's to be proclaimed to every sinner under the sun, no matter what nation, tribe, tongue, or people they are from. That has a lot of implications. We don't have time to get into, but there's no room for racism in the church. There's one savior for every sinner to call upon to be saved. Patriotism. I like patriotism. I I fly my flag, so to speak. We have to buy a new flag. But, you know, we, we celebrate the 4th of July and we're happy. We sing patriotic songs. But patriotism has its limits when it comes to the gospel. Which comes first? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel should not make you a bad citizen. The gospel does not exclude patriotism. But, you know, they say, what's the old saying? Politics stops at the water's edge. Well, the gospel doesn't. We should do all we can to make the gospel go out to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Last thing, notice, notice who this gospel is addressed to. Those who dwell on earth. Now that, that's probably a phrase when you read it, you didn't think much of it. I think this speaks of the seriousness and the urgency of the eternal gospel. The gospel is an eternal message with eternal relevance. It, its relevance never changes. The gospel is always relevant. It's always significant. It offers eternal life to those who repent and believe. But the message of the gospel, which is the word of life in Jesus Christ, when is it available to you? It's available to those who dwell on the earth. It's available to you in this life. Once death has come, there is no more place given for repentance. There's no second and third chance. And we don't know when that day would be so if you're not a christian this morning if you're not a believer in jesus christ don't put it off another day what did jesus say in luke chapter 12 uh, to the man who who was successful he says you now this man said i'm going to build more silos and build more barns and store everything up and eat drink and be merry and this is what god says to him luke 12:19 this is this is what the man says the fool It's a soul he tells himself you have ample goods laid up for many years Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What did God say to that fool? It says, but God said to him, Luke twelve twenty to 21, God said to him, the successful man, right? Fool, or you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's not saying don't be successful. He's not saying don't work hard. He's not even saying don't enjoy what God has blessed you with. What he's saying is don't be rich in the world's things and be poor toward God. And what else does it say? He says this night, did that man who was going to eat, drink, and be merry, did he have any idea when was going to be the day God called him? When the day was going to be when he died? No, none of us know. That's a good thing. We probably wouldn't get out of bed that day if we knew it was going to be that day. But we don't know. None of us, not a single one of us is promised tomorrow. No one is promised the opportunity to repent later. One of the most foolish things that has happened who knows how many times in this world is someone hearing the gospel and saying, you know, I'll I'll do that later. I'll repent and turn to Christ later. What does the Bible say about sin? Sin hardens your heart. The more you put it off, the more you are going to put it off. The king of Nineveh didn't say, relax everybody, we got 40 days, we'll repent at day 39. Right away, don't even let the animals eat and drink, they repented. Don't let your head hit the pillow tonight if you don't know the Lord until you have been reconciled to God through repentance and faith in Christ. Now the context, the context of this eternal gospel and in our passage. And I won't go into it much this morning, but the context is the other two messages from the other two angels that follow right on the heels. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence that this this chapter is so clipped and brief. You have one message with an eternal gospel to proclaim and right away, no delay, the next message. Babylon has fallen. And Right after that, you have the judgment, the final judgment coming. Right on the heels of the gospel, you have those other two messages of judgment and torment on the unrepentant. Now, now it's not too. The the message of this chapter is judgment is right around the corner, but it's not too late to repent and turn to Christ. That that should be the effect of this of this chapter when you read it. Judgment is coming quicker than we think, but the, but we can repent now. There's still an offer of mercy to the repentant, those who turn to Christ. If I could borrow the words I read earlier from Ezekiel 33 and and apply them more directly, Ezekiel 33, turn from your way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O sinner? That's that's the message that we should believe. That's the message we should take and must take to our neighbors and take to all the nations. Those are the words of life in Christ, to turn from your ways and live, turn to Christ and live let's let's pray